If you would, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the letter of 2 John. 2 John. Second John, I'm going to read the whole letter. This is the word of our God. The elder unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but we receive a full reward." Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have preserved it for us. And Lord, that it is the instrument by which you purify your people. Lord, we thank you and ask for your help, the work of your spirit in us, Lord, to renew our minds, to transform us, Lord, to put away sin and to cause us, Lord, to see the glory of Christ revealed. Lord, bless us now as we go through this short letter. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have put in store for us in your word. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This afternoon, we come to a book in the New Testament that's often overlooked. As you were turning just now to it, you might see why. Sometimes it takes up a page or less, and it's really easy to turn over it, just like 3 John is. 
It's a, it's a very short letter. It's only 13 verses long. That means it's the shortest book in the New Testament by count of verses. It's only 245 words long in the original language, which means it's the shortest, the second shortest book in the New Testament by word count. The only one with fewer words is 3 John, coming in at 218 words. This book is often overlooked when people read or study or teach or preach the New Testament. It's easy to fly right by it. And one reason for that is because of its brevity. You can read through 2 John in about two minutes, maybe less if you're a fast reader. Because it is so brief and so compact, it is easy for us to think that it must not be very important. That would be a wrong assumption. Now, another reason that it is often overlooked is because it is similar to 1 John in many of its themes and statements. There's, in a sense, an idea that if you have mastered 1 John, you've already gotten or understood 2 John. 2 John is kind of like the Reader's Digest version of 1 John. But I think this treatment of 2 John is mistaken. And I believe we'll see that as we go through it. Now, this brief letter has an interesting origin, and it helps us to understand it better if we know the context of where it came from and why it was written. You notice in verse 1, it says it was written by the elder. Based on historical evidence and the internal characteristics of this letter, the elder here is the Apostle John. The same John that wrote the Gospel of John, that wrote 1 John and 3 John and the book of Revelation. It has puzzled people why John refers to himself as the elder, or perhaps the term we might use today, the pastor. Many have wondered over the centuries, why would John not refer to himself as an apostle here? Well, perhaps as the last living apostle when he wrote this letter, what stood, what stood out to him most, more than his apostleship, was that he was the oldest person still alive that had seen Christ and who was an apostle of Christ and who was a pastor and elder in the church of Christ. And so he viewed himself, in a sense, as the elder statesman of the church, the last remaining apostle, In a very literal sense, he is the elder because he was not only a pastor and not only an apostle and not only an elder of the church, but he was the oldest of all these. And so he identifies himself in this sense as the elder. Then as the elder, he wrote it unto the elect lady, you see in verse 1, and her children. This elect lady is greeted at the end of the letter by the children of her elect sister in verse 13. Now, some have argued that this elect or chosen lady was a literal woman, that John was writing this to an individual woman that he knew in another church who had children. But it makes more sense in the context of the letter to see that John is writing this as a letter to a church And the elect lady is a metaphor that he is using to describe the church. The children of the lady would be the members of the church. So he is writing to a church and including all of its members. 
Peter does the same type of thing in 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 13. And if you would, turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, there he says, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. Notice that the words church that is are in italics in your authorized version. That means the translators supplied those words. They are not in the underlying original text. In the original language, it simply reads, she in Babylon. Peter is referring to the church in Rome, sending greetings to the churches in other areas where he is writing. Why would he do that? Why would he refer to the church as an elect or chosen woman in Babylon? Well, there was persecution happening in Peter's time. When Peter wrote 1 Peter, there was what he called a fiery trial that had come on the church to persecute Christians. So he refers to the church in this metaphor to provide some protection for the church in Rome and not to identify them, but he uses the name Babylon to reference Rome as a metaphor for Rome. And she or the woman as a reference to the church, the chosen elect woman. Now, the Apostle John is essentially doing the same thing. He is writing to a church. The threat of persecution at this point in the Roman Empire was ever imminent. So rather than exposing who they are, where they are, and giving authorities, should this letter be intercepted, all of this information about the church, he veils it and hides it so that they would have understood what was happening, but the hostile authorities would not have access to that information. John wants to address a very particular concern in this letter. And if we were to distill this letter down to one word, that word would be this, perseverance. This is John's concern in 2 John. He wants to talk to this church about the importance and necessity of perseverance. One writer has noted, the success of the gospel creates problems for the church. We might scratch our heads and say, why is that? What do you mean the success of the gospel creates problems for the church? Well, as more and more people believe the gospel, more and more churches are planted and more and more churches grow, churches become larger, more and more people come to faith in Christ. And that is a glorious blessing. But we must remember the world in which we live and the reality that there will always be tares that grow up among the wheat. So the more people you have involved in the church, the higher the likelihood is that there will be tares in the church, tares among the wheat. The greater the number of people there are to influence, the greater the number of false teachers who will arise to attempt to influence those people, to attempt to get into their pocketbooks and to enrich themselves at the expense of others. And this was a big problem in the early church. As the apostles died off, the number of possible checks to false teachers and false doctrines were diminishing. And false teachers became rampant toward the end of the first century. 
They were everywhere. And Paul warned the Ephesians that this would happen in Acts chapter 20. He warned Timothy that this would happen in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And these false teachers create problems in the church. And so John wants to address this situation before he, the last remaining apostle, goes to be with the Lord. John is the apostle known as the apostle of love. History tells us that when John was an old man, pastoring as he was during the time that he wrote these letters, that he was too old and too feeble to walk to church. And so they would put him on a pallet, and the members of the church would carry him to the church so that he could preach the gospel. And the whole way there and the whole way back, John would say to those he encountered who were part of the church and on their way to meet those who were carrying him on the pallet, little children love one another. Love one another. And he wanted to imprint this on their minds, the necessity of loving one another. And we see this emphasis in his gospel. We see this emphasis in 1 John. But when we come to 2 John, the apostle of love begins to emphasize a different trait, a different necessity. And he wants to emphasize here that we must persevere not only in love, but we must persevere in truth. Truth is central. Truth is vital. And this entire letter is written to encourage the church to persevere in the truth. This letter, as brief as it is, stands in opposition to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age values acceptance over truth. It says that those who believe the truth must set aside the truth in order to create some kind of unbiblical unity that is built around lies. The problem of acceptance over truth, of love being defined as acceptance of sin and of lies, was just as prevalent in John's day as it is in ours. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. And so John writes this letter, this brief letter, to exhort and encourage the church to persevere in the truth in a world that denies that truth matters. The world says truth doesn't matter. Second John says truth is central. It matters, and you must persevere in it. Now, you might ask, how do we persevere in the truth? How are we supposed to accomplish that? And to that end, John gives us four points to help us persevere in the truth. And he begins in verses 1 through 3 with the foundation of perseverance or the grounds. What is the foundation of our persevering in the truth? John writes, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God our God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John begins his letter by noting the foundation of perseverance. He wants us to note in these first three verses 
that there are certain things we must know. We must be convinced of it if we're to stand against the spirit of the age, to stand against false teachers, false brethren, and stand for the truth of Christ in a world that is opposed to truth. And what John tells us here in these first three verses is that the foundation of our perseverance in the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that is the grounds, the foundation. It is the place in which we plant our feet and refuse to move that enables that perseverance in truth. We must be convinced of the truth of the gospel. And we must be convinced not that the gospel is true for us, but that the gospel is truth, the only truth, the eternal truth, the truth that will last forever. God, John reminds us of this in verses 2 and 3. Notice verse 2. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. What does John mean here by truth? Well, if we go to John seventeen seventeen. He writes that Jesus prayed, thy word is truth. If we look at John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the truth. If we look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6, we read that the Spirit of God is the truth. We think about truth and what John is talking about here in verse 2 of what dwelleth or abides in us and what will be with us forever. And we must not separate out God's word, God's son, and God's spirit. But we must understand that the truth, which is the word of God, the son of God, and the spirit of God, abides in us and will be with us in its totality forever. The truth, then, is the the truth of the gospel that is the word of God. And through faith we receive the son of God, who then dwells in our hearts by faith, through the Spirit whom he has given us. And so you see the truth coming to us and the Word and the Son and the Spirit all interacting with us, all abiding in us and all with us forever. And it is, it is so vital to notice that John says this truth will be with us forever because that means that the truth will never change. The gospel that John believed is the same gospel that we must believe today. And the gospel that we believe today will be the same true gospel 10,000 times 10,000 years into the future. And when we are with Christ in glory throughout all eternity, the same truth will be true throughout all the endless ages of eternal glory. The truth is unchanging. It is eternal. And it is with us forever. Now, when we think about this, we understand that the truth of God's word is not just truth for a certain time or for a certain place or for a certain people, but it is the eternal, unchanging truth. We are encouraged to persevere in truth because we understand truth never ends. We persevere in this, and we know that we can keep persevering in it because God has established his truth. And we don't need an updated truth. We don't need a new truth. We just need to persevere in the truth that has always been and always will be. Now in verse 3 in Second John, 
John goes a step further. He says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Now you could render that grace will be with you, mercy and peace. John uses the, fir- the future tense of the, ber- of the verb to be here. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you, shall be with you. Not are with you or be with you, as sometimes we read in the New Testament. Grace and peace be with you, but no, grace, mercy, and peace will be future. It will be with you. Brothers and sisters, grace and mercy and peace, they will be with us. And these words, grace and mercy and peace, are gospel-saturated words. They speak of God's forgiveness of our sins. They speak of reconciliation with God so that we are no longer enemies of God. They speak of the riches of God's kindness that will be poured out on us throughout all of eternity. And John says these three glorious gospel truths will be with us in truth and love. It is the eternal truth and love of God that accompanies these gospel realities. God's grace and mercy and peace will be with us alongside God's truth and love. God's truth and love always comes with his grace and mercy and peace because his grace and mercy and peace towards sinners flow out of his love for sinners. And they are only received through the truth of the gospel. This is so important in verse 3, how John ties together truth and love in a world that is opposed to God and wants to separate love from truth so we might have love without truth. John reminds us that the glorious riches of the gospel will only come to us because truth and love go hand in hand. You can never separate truth and love because they are a unity. Because God defines the truth and because God in his very essence and nature is love. And John wants us to understand these are tied together and the grounds of our perseverance then it is the hope of the gospel. And that's why John puts these things in the future, because he wants us to look ahead and to recognize that our faith in Christ means that the truth will be with us forever, and God's grace and mercy and peace will be with us, come what may. This marks us as different from the world, doesn't it? Because the world is terrified of the future. As we heard this morning, the fear of death that we're in bondage to outside of Christ. They see the whole system as coming down and crashing down. And as Christians, we look at the future and say, it doesn't really matter because grace will be with us no matter what happens. Mercy will be with us no matter what happens. And peace will be with us no matter what happens. And as Christians, we can look to the future and rejoice Understanding that no matter what happens, come what may, we have the truth and the truth has us. 
And God's grace and mercy and peace belong to us now and forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation of persevering in the truth. We must understand the hope of the gospel. That our persevering in the truth does not come about because of something we have done. It comes about because of the promise of God in Christ that will be fulfilled and is being fulfilled. And so we can look ahead and say, I can persevere in truth, not because I looked within myself and found endurance in me, but because I looked up. I saw the promise of God in Jesus Christ, and I trust him. This is the grounds of our perseverance. That the battle's already won. God's promise in the gospel is secure. So God is going to provide everything you and I need to remain in the truth. Now, does that mean that we don't have to do anything? Of course not. That's not what it means. This is not a let go or let God type of theology. God always accomplishes his purposes and fulfills his promises through means. And he tells us in verses 4 through 6 what the means of perseverance are. We can approach this with confidence because of God's promise. And as we do that, then we apply the means of perseverance to our lives. And there are three means that John gives us here in Second John. Three means to persevering in the truth. The first one is in verse 4. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. The first means of persevering in the truth is to walk in the truth, to live a life defined by the truth, to let truth guide every step of your life. No steps in error, no steps in lies, no steps in deception. You stay in the truth. You maintain your faith in the purity of what God teaches. Now, evidently in verse 4, John is saying that he was somewhere and he ran into some members of this church that he was writing to. And when he met them and greeted them and they spent time talking, he found out that they were walking in the truth. And this brought him great joy. And he rejoiced to see these Christians walking in the truth. When he says, I found of thy children, or you could also render it some of your children. When he says this, he is not being passive aggressive and saying, but the others are not doing quite as so well. That's not the point of what he's saying. The point is, he he doesn't know everyone in the church. But everyone that he's met from the church is walking in the truth. And that caused his heart to rejoice at those he does know from that church are walking in the truth. To walk in the truth simply means to live a life based on sound doctrine. If we want to persevere in the truth, we must be sure that we stay connected and rooted in and walking in sound doctrine. We cannot get caught up in error, in heresies, in false teaching. 
God commands us to believe the truth and to reject lies. And so if we want to persevere, we will be clear about our doctrine and we will hold on to sound doctrine and walk in the truth. Now, the second means of walking in the truth is in verse 5. He writes, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. If you want to persevere in the truth, John says, you must love one another. One of the means that God has given you to stay in the truth is love for other believers. Sound doctrine is not enough. You can have sound doctrine devoid of love. And there are many examples of that in Scripture. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We have the church at Ephesus who had sound doctrine, but they had left their first love. They had left. They had forgotten their first love. They were discerning about doctrine. They were commended for that. They kicked out all the heretics, but they didn't love Christ or they didn't love one another. Paul rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, noting that if you have all knowledge and you can solve all mysteries of doctrine, but if you don't have charity or love, you're really a hypocrite. You say you believe one thing, but you live out something entirely different. And eventually that will become exposed. What you truly love and what you truly believe will come out, brothers and sisters. And so John says, if we want to persevere in the truth, then don't merely see if you can pass a theology test for sound doctrine. Look in your heart. Do you love the people of God? And then John gives us a third means in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. What is he talking about here? Obedience. Obedience. Do we do what God commands? We cannot have love apart from obedience because God's word defines what love looks like. And here is a truth that people in this world do not understand and do not believe today. We are not born knowing how to love. We do not know what it is to love when we are born. We come into this world self-centered, selfish people who only love ourselves and want what we want and we do not inherently know how to love others. We must be taught how to love. And the word of God comes along and shows us what love looks like. What love does. And how to love others. This is why Paul could say in Romans 13 and verse 9. That all the commands of the second table of the law were summed up in one command. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because what the law was doing in that second table was showing you what love for neighbor looks like. People are often deceived and think that they are loving when they are walking in disobedience and doing the opposite of love. For example, 
someone may believe that he is in love. But if he is committing adultery and calling that love, he is deceived. You cannot love someone and at the same time be violating God's commands with that person or against that person. And so here John reminds us that if we want to remain in the truth, it's not enough for us just to have sound doctrine and warm and fuzzy feelings for all the people at church. We must be people who obey the truth, who do what God's word says. We must be those whose love for others is defined by the word of God with the appropriate boundaries that God has set in his word. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking these means. Since I just spent a year going through the first six verses of Ephesians 4, I thought it might be a refreshing change of pace to emulate John's brevity in this letter. What is important for us to understand here is that if you don't utilize the means, you can't persevere in the truth. These are the means that God has given. And so we have the foundation of the gospel. We know that God is going to cause us to persevere. And so we take up these means with confidence and we go forward seeking to stay in the truth and to love our brothers and sisters as we are obedient to God's word. Now, we must reckon with a dark reality in our world, a sad reality that we don't often want to think about or talk about, the reality that we would prefer to ignore and pretend as if it didn't exist. And that reality is that there are dangers to perseverance. There are dangers There are threats to your soul. And John wants to warn us about them in verses 7 through 11. Notice verse 7, he says, For many deceivers are entered into this world, into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, I want you to note the danger to perseverance is the false teachers, deceivers. These are people who will see that you are in the truth, that you love the truth, and they will come and seek to deceive you and pull you away from the truth, to distract you, to try to mix error in with the truth. And John tells us some things about these people. First, they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, it is important to note here that John is not limiting their deception to one particular narrow doctrinal concern, namely the humanity of Christ. Obviously, if somebody says the Son of God never became human, they would fail the doctrinal test. We understand that. John is not saying that's the extent of it. He's not saying just acknowledge the humanity of the Son of God and then you're good. You're a true teacher. That's that's not what he's communicating. When John talks about confessing that Jesus, the Messiah, has come in the flesh, he means to indicate that we must believe everything the Bible teaches about Christ. We must believe that everything that it teaches is true of the man named Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is the unique Son of God incarnate. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the rightful king of Israel. 
He is the everlasting God. He is the Son of David. He is, the, he is Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. He is the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the Savior of the world, the light to the nations, and all the truths of the Old Testament that are revealed about the Messiah. And John says that those who are deceivers come along and say that Jesus did not have those things fulfilled in him. Or not all of them. Or the person who fulfilled them was not really a man or not really God, and they, they corrupt the doctrine of Christ. He tells us more in verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. John says the deceivers transgresseth. Another way you could render that is the one transgressing or the one breaking commands or even the one falling away. These deceivers continually overstep God's commandments, his word. They are persistently falling away from the truth by breaking its bounds. John describes it as a present reality with an ongoing action. They progress in their transgression. They are progressive in their disobedience, in their errors, in their lies, and they do not abideth in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ. They go past it. They go beyond it. They add to God's word. They add new teachings not found in Scripture, not found in the apostolic tradition. These are people that would affirm the scriptures as the word of God on one hand, but then they would say that the Bible is not enough. And they want to add new revelation, some new angelic vision or something similar. But they claim to have direct revelation from God that they add to the apostolic testimony recorded in scripture. And we know cults like Mormonism are based on this very thing. These are people who have gone too far. They are transgressing the bounds of truth, the truth of Christ. Maybe you've never thought about it this way before, but Mormons, biblically speaking, are progressives. They've gone beyond what Scripture teaches and added to what Scripture teaches and distorted and perverted and corrupted the doctrine of Christ. I think this was such a critical issue for John because He was the last of the apostles. He knows that he is near the end of his earthly sojourn. He knows that after he's gone, that false teachers and deceivers are going to arise and that they would claim that God had spoken to them, that God had told them this or that, that God had revealed new information never known to the church. And the temptation is always to depart from the written word of God and embrace something new and something Exciting and innovative and progressive. We're all by nature, one writer said, we're all by nature Athenians on Mars Hill. The Athenians on Mars Hill, it says in Acts 17.21, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. We love new things. And John here indicates that you don't want to embrace something new 
This is such a red flag that should go up whenever we hear somebody say, God told me. They transgresseth. They are transgressing. They are surpassing. They are progressing past the bounds of truth established by God in his word concerning the doctrine of Christ. And he says, verse 9, and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine or the teaching is the teaching that Christ has given in the Bible. The teaching of Christ in his word. It's what Christ has taught us through his apostles. And since they depart from this truth, they do not abide in what Christ has said. Now understand, this can happen in many different ways. It can just be a flat-out denial about what the Bible says about Jesus or God or some sort of doctrinal error. But it can also be in terms of lifestyle and actions as well. For example, in Jude 4, we read about the false teachers, the ungodly people, the false brothers who had turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness or sensuality. So what they did is they came and they took the teaching of Christ about grace. They take the teaching of Christ about grace and they twist it. They perverted it. They changed it to mean that since God forgives sins, you might as well just enjoy your sin. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about godly living. Don't worry about obedience to God's word. You're forgiven. Do whatever you want. See, if you say that, you can acknowledge the deity and humanity of Christ. You can have an orthodox Christology. But if you say that, then you are not abiding in the doctrine of Christ because that's not what Christ taught. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, we see the other end of the spectrum. Paul talks about men having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. This is legalism. Everything looks godly on the outside. Everything looks clean and pristine, whitewashed tombs, right? And everything looks like they're being obedient, except the only problem is they're doing it all by the power of the flesh. They're rejecting true godliness. They have a form, an external manifestation of godliness that has no power in it. That's legalism. When you think you can obey Christ in your own strength and you try to live the Christian life in your own power, that's legalism. And certainly, you can do things to impress others. You can look like a good person. You can look like a godly person trying to serve Christ in your own strength. But you can never be a godly person in your own strength. You don't have the power. You must depend on Christ. And so we can go as far as to say that anyone living a life dominated by the flesh, a life dominated by disobedience to the word of God, is not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. They have set aside the word of God. They have raised up their own standard. They have set aside the law of Christ, and they have established their own law. 
They've made a standard they feel comfortable meeting. Now understand that people like this are a danger to persevering in the church. We don't look at these people as harmless, misguided people in the church. Those who do things, who do these things have an aim and have an objective. It is to draw those who are in the truth away from the truth, to follow after them and to embrace their lies. They want you to follow them rather than Christ. They are like the false teachers in Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. There Paul says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye may affect them. Another way you could say that is, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're not interested in you seeking Christ. They want you to follow them. And so they seek you out for the purpose of drawing you into their orbit. And then their goal is to systematically cut you off from other people who do know the truth, who believe the truth. What do we do with people like this? Look at verse 8, 2 John 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Here's the first thing you do when you see somebody like this. When that alarm bell starts going off, look to yourselves. This means be on guard. Watch yourself. Watch out. Beware of danger. Defenses need to go up. Because people like this threaten to destroy the work of God, the work that he has accomplished among the people of God. John here talks about not losing what we have wrought or accomplished, but receiving a full reward. And I don't think that John means that we're not going to receive salvation. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is is that when you let false brethren, false teachers, have influence in the church, they damage the ministry of the gospel. And they jeopardize your faithfulness to Christ. And at the end, you lose your reward because you have not been faithful as the Lord has called you to be. Paul describes this concept in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, the word of God says, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Here, what Paul is saying is you can be saved, but that you can go into heaven smelling like smoke, as one author put it. And everything you did in your life to serve Christ amounts to a pile of ash. No reward. You forfeit it because you were not faithful to the truth. You don't want that. I don't want that. We don't want to spend all this energy and all this time serving Christ and get to the end and find out that we don't receive a full reward because we wandered away from the truth. We want our work to remain. We want it to abide. We want to have eternal impact and eternal value so that 
we receive a reward from God for our faithful service that we've done through his grace and by his power. But deceivers don't want you to have that full reward. They come along and they try to distract you. They misdirect you. They, they seek to confuse you. They corrupt your service. They do this to corrupt the church. And John says that you must watch out. You must look to yourselves to make sure that doesn't happen because there are going to be people that come in and seek to do that. And so we must be vigilant as a church and as members of the church to look to yourselves, as he says here. Not only that, but verse 10 If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, there's a culture gap we must understand here so that we can understand what John is saying, because this isn't primarily about having a meal inside one's house. In the ancient world, travelers would come and they would visit a town. And when a traveler came into a town, if they didn't know anybody, they didn't have standing in that town. And when a traveler came to a town, if they didn't know anybody and didn't have standing, they weren't trusted and they were seen as a threat. No one knew why they were there or where they came from. It wasn't known if they were criminals or robbers or murderers or what they might be. And so how did you gain standing in a town or a village or a city in that time? Someone in that city would welcome you into their home and they would give you lodging. And when somebody welcomed a traveler into their home and gave them lodging, they essentially said that this person is trustworthy. You were essentially saying, I am vouching for this person. When somebody welcomed a traveler into their home, they were telling everybody else in the town or the village, you can trust this person. He's not a robber. He's not a murderer. He's not any of those other things. He's a decent citizen, somebody that should be able to walk around and navigate the town freely. And furthermore, we know that most churches in this time period met in people's homes. And so receiving somebody into your home here in the context of writing to a church would be akin to receiving them into the church. And so what John is talking about here is when the church allows someone in who is disobedient to Christ, whether that is in doctrine or in life or both, and vouches for their integrity, and bidding them God's speed or greeting them does not mean that you don't say hello if you pass a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness in the grocery store. That's not what John's talking about. But what you don't say is, how are you doing, brother? Because they're not brothers. You don't greet non-believers as if they were believers. Now, when people come to town in our time, obviously they don't have the same issues, the same cultural expectations that they had in the ancient world, but the principle is the same. We don't put our stamp of approval on false teachers. We don't partner with false teachers. We don't promote false teachers. We don't vouch for false teachers. In the context of the church, if somebody comes in and their testimony is not credible, we don't put a stamp of approval that they are in Christ if there is evidence that they are not. 
We can't pretend that false brothers and sisters are false teachers. We can't pretend that they are sincere brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you don't give a false teacher the pulpit or a teaching position. In fact, you don't let them in the church at all. Given the nature of house churches at this time, John's statement probably indicates that such a person should not be allowed at the church for any reason whatsoever. Don't endanger the people of God like that. Now, this is found many places in Scripture. Turn over to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. In verse 17, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. We could summarize Paul's instructions here in Romans 16 like this. Mark and avoid. Mark and avoid. See who the false brothers are. See who the false teachers are. Identify them by name and avoid them. Don't get tangled up in their deception. Don't have fellowship with them. Look who is stirring up trouble and who is breaking the unity of the church. Look who is seeking to cause division. Look who is living a life that is contrary to the teaching of Christ. Mark them and avoid them. Why? Because if you don't, they endanger the whole church. They, by their good words and fair speeches, by their smooth and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple and the unsuspecting. And there's an assumption here by Paul that in any growing church where Christ is present, there are new believers there. There are immature believers there. And this is what deceivers do. They look for those who are young in the truth, young in their faith, who are impressionable, who don't, don't have a whole lot of a discernment, and they flatter them with their smooth speech, and they try to deceive them and eventually draw them away from Christ. And Paul says, when you see a person like that, mark them and avoid them. In that verse we looked at a moment ago in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from search turn away. Avoid them. Don't have fellowship with them. Don't hang out with them. Avoid them. And it, it's interesting that he tells that to Timothy. Because somebody might say, yeah, Romans 16, I'm, I'm not the simple one. I'm spiritually mature. I can handle it. No, you can't. You can't handle it. Timothy couldn't handle it. Paul doesn't say engage such men as these. He says avoid such men as these. Because they pose a danger. Titus 3 Verses 10 through 11 says, A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that 
he knowing that knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself somebody who brings false doctrine into the church or somebody who stirs up division in the church should receive two warnings a first warning and a second warning or we might say today strike one and strike two If you don't listen, what comes after strike two? Strike three, you're out. You're done. You're out of the church. You've been rejected. Why? Because we have condemned you? No, because you condemned yourself by your rebellious, disobedient, divisive actions and attitudes. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. Paul tells... The Corinthians, your glorying is not good. What are they glorying or boasting about? Amazingly, they're, they're boasting about that they have been sinful, that, that they have let sinful people into the church. We just welcome everybody. Any sinner is allowed to be a member here. It doesn't matter if you're engaging in adultery with your stepmother. That's okay. That's fine. It doesn't matter how divisive you are. You can be here. Remember all the factions that were going on in the church at Corinth? Paul tells them, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Know ye not. Do you not know this? Whenever you read that in Scripture, you should really take note of that. You should know this. This is what the writer is saying. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? How many false teachers does it take to corrupt a church? One. And so what's the conclusion? Later on, Paul writes in verse 13, Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Put him out. He's too dangerous. He's too dangerous for the purity of the church. He's too dangerous to the souls of the unsuspecting. He's a danger to the unity of the church. A little leaven, and you don't need a lot, a little leaven will contaminate the entire church and threaten the purity of the bride of Christ. And if there's one thing we should never allow to be defiled, it's Christ's holy bride. Back to 2 John. The apostle gives a sobering warning in verse 11. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Think about that. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. That's a sobering warning, brothers and sisters. If you can ignore this call to mark and avoid, and you continue to fellowship and partner with false brethren and false teachers and deceivers, you become partakers or partners with them, sharing in their evil. And what they are guilty of 
is on your head too. John is showing us the limits of love. And he's indicating that love must be bound by truth. And when somebody departs from the truth, we cannot love them as a brother or sister in Christ. They must be removed and they must be regarded by us as a publican or a tax collector, as an unbeliever, as a Gentile. It's a sad reality that there are dangers like this to persevering in the truth. But we must come to terms with this reality, however difficult it may be. And if we want to persevere in the truth, if we want our brothers and sisters to persevere in the truth, we must mark and avoid those who cause division, those who reject the truth of the word of Christ, those who live contrary to what Christ has taught. Now, as painful and sobering as all of that is, John ends on a hopeful, blessed note, reminding us, in the end, the joys of perseverance. Verses 12 and 13. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Here is what John is saying. My joy is made full when I see you in the truth. When we see other believers walking in the truth, it fills our souls with innumerable and unexpressible joys. There is no joy like the joy of being together in unity in the truth of who Christ is. When we think about this church on the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, and we see the unity that we have in worship, the unity that we have in fellowship, the unity that we have in worshiping God, the unity that we have in singing, the unity that we have in love, that we share in the truth of Christ, our hearts should be full of innumerable joys. There is nothing like seeing each other love the truth and the joy it brings to our hearts when we are surrounded by lovers of Christ. And this is John's encouragement, that when we persevere in the truth and we come together, our hearts overflow with joy. Beloved brothers and sisters, there is such great joy in that unity, and it's not just here. We rejoice when we see other churches persevering in truth. It causes our hearts to rejoice. What a joyful thing it is to know that in Broken Arrow and in this area, Covenant Baptist is not the only church persevering in truth, but there are other churches and other godly men preaching the word of God, and those churches are persevering in truth. And nothing should thrill our hearts more than when we see other godly assemblies growing. We should want every church where God's word is upheld and people are persevering in the truth to be growing numerically and spiritually. Because seeing more and more people in the truth increases our joy. Brothers and sisters, we are in a world that is hostile to truth. We're in a world that believes that you can have love without truth. 
and that it demands that you set aside truth and embrace lies, you are called to cling to the truth. And the good news is you're not called to do that in your own strength or alone. You have the truth within you as the Word and as the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the Son of God. You have the truth within you and you have the people of God around you bringing us joy as we encourage one another day by day and week by week in the truth. May the Lord be pleased to cause each one of us to persevere in the truth for the glory of his name.